0: Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Welcome to Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies. Now, this is the show that takes your favorite fictional science and technology, and we make it a reality. We do that. We have the Brain Trust. I am the analytical mastermind, Daniel J. Glenn. With me, physics phenom, Dr. Michael Denon.
1: Well, it's great to be here, Dan. I'm very excited, though I feel like I'm, I've i sort of lost the streak a bit. Not the streak of awesome shows by us, because this is going to be equally awesome, if not better. But in terms of shows we've watched, I have to admit, this show is not my favorite. You know me, I tend to like everything. I love parts of it, but as an overall show, I felt this lacked a little. I, I have to be honest with you right from the beginning here. No, that's okay. Well, there's one person who
0: has to answer for that, and it's not me. I refuse to take responsibility for this, Denon. It's our enigmatic engineer, Ben Siepzer, who chose this show. So, Ben, first of all, where are you recording from this week, and what do you have to say to Michael Denon's inflammatory, incendiary
2: response to this show? Well, you know, hold on there, Denon. I'm just about to meet with the board of Grumble here to present my newest inventions Inventions to get some great, sweet fun in here. So... I'll get back to you about your concerns, but I really got to focus on this uh, invention presentation first. Okay, we'll get. L- let's let <laughs> let's let Ben get
0: his stuff together here for a second. But let's talk about it, then and because uh, you know Modoc is it's an interesting show. So very quickly, it's about a gigantic-headed uh, evil villain who has a family life, and we watch him go through a midlife crisis in the stop-motion style of Robot Chicken. Uh, I will. I have to tell you, Dennon, I'm with you a little bit on this, but as I watched the full season, it totally grew on me, and I actually looked forward to watching the episodes instead of cringing and wishing
1: for them to be over. Uh, did that ever happen to you at all? Well, you know, I think it is growing on me, and I will tell you, the part I absolutely love, I think is brilliant, is you know, his family life and him being a supervillain. Right? I absolutely mm-hmm. love that. I think one of the funniest things ever was very, very early. This may even have been the first episode when his minions are wondering where he goes at night and what we find out is he's going to suburbia to his, at that point, happy family in um, Homestead. So, you know, that part I loved. I think, I think it was the juxtaposition. There is just that style of humor of basically being loud and I believe you were the one, Dan, who said it. Um, And maximizing the number of jokes, which I get as a style, I can appreciate as a style, but is not my style. That's all I'm saying here. Yeah, that's fair. So
0: what what I said was, I believe that this show has its its quantity over quality of jokes. It's just rapid, rapid fire. And, you know, they take the approach that one of them will hit and you'll laugh at something. Um, And that's not always true, by the way. So, Ben, now that you've I hope you finish your presentation because you've got a lot to answer for for this show. (laughs) Besides being a Marvel show, and I think it fits beautifully into what we've done recently with Loki and Black Widow. Explain yourself,
2: Ben. Well, I just like the the lighter takes on the Marvel Universe. Uh, you know, sometimes the, you know you know, Falcon, Winter Soldier, you know, Wandavision, Black Widow, you know, sometimes they get a little too serious. And I like the, you know, lighthearted take of, uh, you know, that a show that doesn't take itself too seriously and is willing to lampoon and have some fun with some very implausible. Uh, realities that go on uh, around Modok and AIM. Yeah, you know, I'm going to have to agree with Ben on that part, Dan.
1: That that you know that that approach to this, I definitely agree with. I mean, I was very much enjoying um, Iron Man streaming um, Netflix shows in his helmet or whatever he was streaming. <laughs> you know that that <laughs> yeah. that is clearly an excellent use of an Iron Man suit. Like, I, I give that two thumbs up. Um, and so that lighter side of this. Like I said, the lighter side in the family life I like, I I think it's just that weird structure. It's that style of jokes that, you know, doesn't fit all of us.
0: Well, I will tell you what's kind of interesting about this show. You know, you mentioned him being a supervillain working for AIM, uh, which, so MODOK, let me, let me give a couple things here. I got, I got a lot to get through here. So MODOK stands for Mental, Mobile, or Mechanized Organism Designed Only for Killing. That's what MODOK stands for. Uh, in the comic books, it's a guy named George Tarleton. He was an engineer for AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. We see all of that, which is in the comic book, and I think partly in the show as well, um, they are a Terrorist group, basically bent on world domination—something I warn people about every single week on this show—that uh, <laughs> possibly we are creating the next generation of world-dominating supervillains. But, um, but not not so, because you know everyone wants to be a superhero. But here's what's great about this show is we, as you mentioned, Denon, we see Modoc in his family life, which is such a big juxtaposition against his life as a supervillain, against the Avengers, and creating all of these extraordinarily dangerous and gruesome experiments. So as when this show comes out, I will have interviewed um, a guy about the MKUltra mind control experiments from the CIA, which I have an error coming up later on in the show. We'll look out for that. Uh, But what's interesting about that show is the MKUltra experiments for the CIA were run by a guy named Sidney Gottlieb, and he performed some of the worst, most wide-sweeping, incredibly criminal activities throughout the, the 50s and the 60s for the CIA, but had a home life that included living in the in in the country having a farm for kids it was such a bizarre dexter you know like a dexter life where his you know his working life was basically a supervillain except he worked for the american government and his home life was this beautiful idyllic suburban life and i see that in modoc this show feels like the comedy version of of Sidney Gottlieb's life uh in in you know in real life. Now I, I Denon, I know you haven't read that book at all, but is did you get any kind of sense of that or, or is this really a true
1: comedy um that you didn't really see the terror and the horror involved? Oh no, I, I I would agree that it's fascinating to get this dual insight into a person who's planning to take over the world. Look, he he takes his wife back in time to try and rekindle their marriage, and he's torn between going and killing his arch enemy um, and actually making her happy. And he chooses killing his archenemy, Um, clearly uh, understanding why his marriage is in trouble at that point. Um, The fact that he has an archenemy, like anyone who's married knows there's no time for archenemies. Um, So, so, you know, I I, I really do like that kind of... That's Like like I told you, that was the part I loved, this juxtaposition of evil empire but um, family man.
2: The other thing I really like is just putting a lampshade on this whole evil empires as a profitable business being a total fantasy you know aim is going bankrupt because who's gonna hire aim when they're doing all these shenanigans where where's the money come from I really enjoyed <laughs> this idea that a company these evil corporate this evil weapons organization ends up bought out by an evil social media company because that's the only way. Uh, companies like that can be profitable and get money I- in the modern age. <laughs> well, you know what's what I like about that is, in
0: some ways, what I saw uh, was a parallel to our own world. And what I mean by that is, when we looked at Loki, we looked at variants. You know, we looked at how in- there can be different versions of an individual person. But with this show, what we're really looking at is a completely alternate reality of the Marvel Universe, which I really liked and I want to talk about. But I did notice a couple things that were very similar, and I want to get your take on it. When I was looking at these characters, you know, Denon, you kind of reminded me a little bit of Austin. Um, I kind of thought of myself as MODOK, you know, a big-headed dope kind of always running his mouth. And, you know, as we see, uh, the, the evil super genius, super engineer Arcade looks comedically... (laughs) like Ben, especially with
1: his intricate inventions. Did you guys see these parallels, or am I the only one? Well, as the analytic mastermind, Dan, I think you analyzed this quite well. I was not thinking that way, um, and I think that was because I was spending my time trying to figure out if I liked the show or not. (laughs) So you know, Dennett, one of the things that I believe, and I think you're going to share this this opinion,
0: uh, is, as the saving grace of this show, is this really cool look at an alternate timeline for the MCU. So not only do we have a really cool look at obscure villains, they kind of shed light on the dark corners of the dark characters of the past going back 50 and 60 years, not only do they do that, but what they also do is they create a very co- cohesive alternate universe for Modok and all of those Marvel characters. I really enjoyed that. And I it got me thinking, how would we could could we create or does do they exist? Could we create another universe where the laws of physics maybe were a little bit different? But they created a similar universe, albeit a very different universe from from a laws of physics standpoint. But also a stable universe. Uh, you know, I know you're you're the obviously the master of physics here. Could we adjust some of these things and create something that is just as interesting, uh, but also very stable?
1: You know, Dan, that's, I think, a question many physicists ponder. It's a great question. You know, we're probably not going to change the laws of physics, but we're going to look at the parameters. That's where we go. Um, Three fun ones to look at. Planck's constant, because it controls quantum mechanics, speed of light, because it controls relativity, and then gravity. Planck's constant in quantum mechanics is a really dangerous one. The best example of that is what we know about DNA. Planck's constant and quantum mechanics makes DNA very stable, but it also mutates at a good rate so that you can get evolution. Without Planck's constant being where it is, you either get massive mutations and you never like survive, you're a blob, or you get no mutations and you stay a single cell. Both bad options. On the other hand, speed of light I think is safe to play with. You know, you make the speed of light nice and slow and suddenly you get a lot of cool relativistic effects and time slows down. So that's where I'm leaning. That's the parameter you change. But Ben, as an engineer, what parameter would you like to change?
2: I like the speed of light because as an engineer, you could both lower it like you mentioned, Denon, to have relativistic effects uh, be more noticeable, but you could also raise it, which would allow interstellar travel to be a potentially more realistic thing without having the problem of... uh, the relativistic effects causing uh, too much time to have gone by uh, on the from your destination and your uh, source uh, on your trip.
0: You know, I think this is really interesting because you know not only with the laws of physics, but also when we talk about looking outside of our planet for habitable other other habitable planets, we talk about this thing called the Goldilocks zone, and it's you know it's a confluence of of, of physical characteristics or. Um, you know, situations, environment, where everything is just perfect. And as you mentioned, Dan, the laws of physics here are obviously very perfect. The the conditions for life here are, are, are very perfect. But I wonder, you know, if we were going to, if you're going to choose your ideal alternate universe, like what would it look like? Well, what laws of physics would you want to see adjusted or play with where, you know, you think it would be a great place to live? You know, for
1: me, Dan, I'm going to go back to what I said with the speed of light. Um, first, because I would love to be able to see time slow down when I was just you know, reaching my top speed of you know, roughly um, 3 miles per hour. Um, right now, that's nowhere near the speed of light, and so you see no effect of time dilation. Um, but you know, imagine a speed of light of about you know, 3.2 miles per hour. Um, I could look really, really cool in that universe. Um, the other possibility, of course, is to mess with gravity, um, because I could probably make myself, you know, a, a little lighter. You know, I could lose, according to my doctor, uh, I could really afford to lose a few pounds um, for heart safety and health. Um, and I, you know, I like eating my cookies. And so if I could just adjust gravity down a bit, all those physics experts out there know our weight would drop. Um, so those are sort of two directions I would go for my ideal alternate Goldilocks universe. Well, let me say something here, Denon, because your weight would go down, but even
0: a rube like me knows your mass stays the same. So aren't you just fooling yourself here, Denon? And even a reduced gravity, wouldn't that have implications on your heart as well?
1: You know, I don't know. The doctor always uses the word weight, Dan, so I'm just listening to my doctor. All right. All right. Fair
0: enough. What about you, Ben? What would you like to see in your ideal universe?
2: Well, you know, if we're going to go kind of the evil uh, path here— By lowering the speed of light to something achievable by our technology, uh, we could create uh, perpetual life situations where, you know, if you could travel at a relativistic speed, uh, your time would dilate and you could come back kind of like Planet of the Apes in the future. So if that speed of light was a reasonable speed that our rockets could achieve, all of a sudden you go out, you take a couple orbits at a relativistic velocity, you come back and it's the future now. So, you know, that, that's kind of what I like. It's, it's a practical way to time travel if we lower the speed of light. Well, I gotta tell you, I don't know what
0: adjustments I would make to make my perfect world, but I do love the stop motion characteristics of the Modoc world. And while I was watching this show, I couldn't help but just marvel over at all the intricate little props that they had to create on a miniature level. I don't know that I would want to necessarily live in that world forever, but if I was gonna create an alternate universe where I was running around, I think I'd want it to look a lot like the Modoc world. You know, when when I think of, you know, as we're talking about all of these different universes and all the different, you know, things that we would adjust or whatever, it made me think uh, of pizza. You know, I'm a, I'm a Chicago-style pizza man, Giordano stuffed pizza is my favorite, and you know, the way it's constructed is you've got cheese in the middle, big thick cheese, and you got sauce on the top and a little thin layer of dough. Now, that is a perfect pizza in my mind. Now, you can adjust the red pepper, you can adjust the sausage a little bit without overpowering it. If you do something different, the pizza's ruined. Also, you go to New York and they've got thin crust pizza with very little sauce that's a little bit pink uh, and lots of big chunks of, of toppings on there. Two very different pizzas, but constructed in very dissimilar ways with similar ingredients, but the, th- there's different proportions. There's different styles. Each one of those, I would argue, is in the Goldilocks zone. That may be a little simplistic for the laws of the universe, but this is kind of what I envision when I think of alternate realities and how they would be different.
1: Well, you know, Dan, I, I don't think it's simplistic at all. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and um, steal that. I will cite you and reference it when I use it in my classes, but I think that is the Perfect. ideal model for the uh, what happens when you vary the parameters of physics. You know, in physics, we joke about liking the spherical cow. I'm going to go with the circular pizza. Um, And so I think it's a perfect model. But you know what? That pizza made me think about, right? The pizza is surrounded by people in the pizza place. Right, And and the people that you're surrounded with and the different environments you're in can lead to very different outcomes. And it does make me wonder if this is less about changing the laws of physics or if Modok's world is more about sort of changing the environment and the people he's surrounded by and the pathways by which he gets to different places.
0: You know, I like this idea of what would it be like if things were different around you? You know, for example, you know, we look at Modok and his defining characteristic is his gigantic head. You know, this is a real thing. It's called macrocephaly, and it's, you know, there people children can be born with gigantic heads. I don't know if that actually correlates to more brains or more intelligence. I'm not actually sure that there's any correlation there. But the interesting thing about it is in the comic books, these are he performs experiments on himself designed to increase his intelligence. And in the TV show, he just has a big head and gets made fun of a lot for it. And he uses that anger and, and, and resentment. To go on to become a supervillain. Now, those we've we've arrived at, you know, two very similar patterns. You know, two very similar destinations. Two very similar, but but very different paths to get there. So I, I see what you mean, Dan. but in some ways, you know,
1: it's very interesting to look at Modoc in those terms. Oh, I, I love that that description, Dan. And I think you're right. And it, it really is interesting that. You can start with differences and end up in similar places. And of course, we see that in evolution, you know, convergent evolution, where you get to similar solutions from very different paths. So um, maybe that's really just what the TV show wanted to present to us, um, is a subtle Darwinian lesson in convergent evolution by getting MODOK through a different path.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's kind of more convergent Uh, storylines. MODOK is also the uh, subject of the newest Marvel video game that I played recently, where he he mutates his uh, head into being. He starts as a normal person as George Charlton, and he mutates himself using stolen uh, super soldier uh, juice serum. Well, more like Captain America's blood, but anyway, he he turns himself into Modok using super soldier stuff, and you know you get you get to that same endpoint, but in three very different ways: genetic uh, self experimentation and super soldiers. So, you know, convergent storylines, not necessarily evolution.
0: Yeah, it is interesting to see how people, you know, especially, it's easier to obviously look at in fiction, uh, to see how people can have similar beginnings, different paths, and arrive in similar destinations, uh, because in all of them, you know, he's got this hover chair that he sits in, because this head is unwieldy. I mean, it's impossible to really move around. I mean, I don't think anyone's neck could really support that gigantic head, but he's got this hover chair, and I like the hover chair because, A, it's pretty cool, but to me, the defining characteristic of this hover chair is just how... How agile it is. It gets him around everywhere he needs to go. So it completely replaces his legs in some way. And I imagine from an engineering standpoint,
2: Ben, this has to be really difficult to uh to really get right. The chair is really interesting because we see how it, it lifts very clearly. There's like some sort of giant rocket on the bottom. We all can understand that. You know, it, it just holds his weight up. But we don't what we don't see is how it maneuvers. We don't see like lots of little jets like a like a rocket uh, craft would have uh, that control his attitude and his uh, pointing. So uh, one possibility is there's some really cool gyros in there that help uh, with his yaw and pitch. But you still have to un- you still have to appreciate that there's some sort of uh, non reaction thrust going on here that can somehow act ac- against the uh, Earth so that he can maneuver into these tight spots. So there's some sort of maybe gravity manipulation going on here so that he can go, you know, translate side to side and not just float. I do wonder, you know, I was thinking gravity manipulation. That
1: was the first place I went, um, Ben. So I'm glad you mentioned that. But, you know, I do wonder, there's sort of two extreme technologies you can go. Gravity manipulation, which is an extreme technology we don't really understand at this point at all. We could use some general language around. But, I wonder if he's just very cleverly using the Earth's magnetic field, and it's a magnetic manipulation system. I mean, he is surrounded by an intricate um, sort of metallic shell that you could imagine sending eddy currents through and using those currents for very refined um, magnetic manipulation and control. Because like you said, the, the key part's done. He's got the lift. And Dan, to your point, his agility... Doesn't necessarily require a lot of force once he's made made his lift because there's not a lot of friction there, and so the side-to-side motion might be all magnetic.
0: It just requires very specific movements that I just found very interesting. You know, even to you know move into corners, to float around, to not bump into everything all the time. Uh, You know, I I really like the chair because it's it's the one thing that we see all the time because this show has a lot of gadgets in it, but this seemed to be the one that I could actually see being invented. Although, the other one that I think I could see being invented, um, not necessarily out of necessity, which the hover chair is, but this one out of, you know, just sh- the-, the Klegomites or whatever. When they come into town and you want to get drunk fast, uh, the drunk the gun that makes you drunk that we see in this show, I think someone would want to do this. Some some genius frat guy, if that even is not an oxymoron, I think that they could come to terms and create this gun. I, I really... Not- this was kind of funny, and so basically, it's a gun. You shoot it at, at somebody else, and they become instantly drunk or act drunk or whatever you want to say. I, I like this invention, Dan, and I'm curious how would the physics work here? There's got to be a couple ways that we could tackle this, you know, as as a as an invention.
1: Well, well, Dan, I think um, to your point, genius frat um, uh, people have already invented this. It's called the super soaker filled with alcohol. It just requires exact aim into the mouth of your opponent. Um, and, and enough alcohol in the super soaker, you're done. Now, they don't visualize it this way in the show because I think that is um, intellectual property that's kept very close um, mm-hmm. and, and sealed. So they couldn't present sure. the actual drunk gun on TV without being sued. Um, I, yeah. I think that's the real problem. But, you know, it, it is an interesting question because you mentioned they appear to be or get drunk, um, which does raise the question of besides the super soaker, Could this be some sort of brain manipulation, basically an electromagnetic ray, you know, electromagnetic Mm -hmm. effect that influences the right part of the brain, which I clearly am just talking about randomly and Ben has expertise in. So I'm going to turn it over to Ben.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting because when you're when you're drunk, you have that effect comes from having alcohol in your system that messes with your neurotransmitters. So. It's certainly possible that you could instead have some sort of system that kind of gives your neurotransmitters a little kind of kick or mess up that persists for a while. Uh, it, you, you could certainly do something like that. Uh, I think the easier method, though, is just injecting some alcohol straight to the bloodstream, you know, skipping the mouth, because that takes a while, um, and, require, and, you, and some of that alcohol gets broken down by your stomach, you know, it's very inefficient. You really just want to go straight for the you know, raw grain alcohol right right to the veins. Like, that's the way to go, I think, with this uh, more of a tranquilizer dart situation.
0: Well, so I think, you know, Denon, I think you might be with me on this. That goes right in line with Ben's obsession
1: with blow darts. Oh, yeah. No, I think I may be wearing the hat, but, but we know Ben's the blow dart expert. <laughs> um, but it does make me think of a, another way to do this, right? I, I like the idea of direct um, sort of injection of alcohol, but there is also you know, possibly sort of a metabolic effect you can occur and generate at a distance. Um, This is really sort of the most, um, shall we say it, you know, skeptical or, um, you know, dangerous technology that I don't imagine quite how we would do. But fundamentally, right, chemistry is the exchange of electrons. It's electricity. So, again, using some sort of correct electromagnetic field that you generated, perhaps you create chemistry Um, in the body that mimics the generation of alcohol. Um, Obviously, we're doing metabolic processes all the time, and maybe you hijack the person's metabolism. Maybe you do something to our favorite biological um, situation, gut bacteria.
2: Denon, well, that's a real thing. There's a syndrome called autobrewery syndrome, where our gut bacteria, there are people whose gut bacteria... Make alcohol, make too much alcohol, and they end up at a, a low level of drunk basically all the time. And you know, if they ever get uh, breathalyzed or have to take a, a blood alcohol test, it'll it'll show up a significant amount of alcohol in their bloodstream, even though they don't have the effect of being drunk because. They're always a little drunk, so their body kind of gets used to it and works through that situation. It's a pretty scary thing when, uh, say, the police would always think you're driving drunk. Well, I mean, you are always driving drunk, though. True, but you're not driving impaired.
1: But but Ben, does this then explain why, um, without drinking any alcohol, people would come up to me at high school dances and say, Wow, you seem really drunk. Did I maybe have this disease without knowing
2: it? Uh, perhaps. Uh, you know, Maybe you want to take a little uh, blood test and see if you're always... Uh, Always drunk.
1: Yeah, I just thought it was I was a really bad dancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, both can be true at the same time, then. And let's not forget okay.
0: that. Um, I, yeah, I mean, th- that's really crazy, Ben. I don't think I realized that you could have that. I mean, would you have to have like a doctor's note that you have to show to, you know, law enforcement officials as you, you know, drive, auto- operate your automobile?
2: Well, it's been a problem because there were some people who were, uh, always on the eye of the police, and they did have to get medical testing to prove that they actually had this situation so that they could uh, clear a DUI off of their record.
0: Wow. That's nuts. That, I
2: mean, even
0: I learned something on this show. What does that tell you? How great is this show? Uh, I mean that that's absolutely incredible. And I'm actually afraid of what you guys are gonna say next because, you know, one of the other guns that's in this show is a black hole gun. You know, I don't know if this is a myth or not, but there was a belief that when the Large Hadron Collider was turned on, you know, you know, 10, 15 years ago, whenever that was, that there would be that it would generate many black holes and they would swallow the earth and end existence as we know it like most proclamations like this it turned out to be absolutely sensationalized uh, probably mostly for headlines I don't know if there's actually any fear with this so first of all my question is was it a possibility or was it absolute uh, horse pucky or uh, and and or you can do whatever you want with this um, is it possible to create many black holes like that Uh, I'm curious
1: about the physics on this first Denon well, you know, the, the interesting thing is, no, it was not a risk at any point. Um, but the other answer is, yes, you could create them. It, you know, the, the thing about black holes are it really is simply if you take whatever mass you have and compact it close enough, it will eventually get so dense that there'll be an event horizon, a distance away from the matter that light can't escape out of it. Um, But that does not mean that this thing is infinitely strong at sucking everything into it. That's the most common myth about black holes. Um, Because if you're outside the event horizon, you can get away from it quite easily. We do that all the time. There's a black hole at the center of our galaxy that is not currently sucking us in. Um, we are orbiting it, but that's a very different story. So, so black holes are much safer than people think, but you do still have to be careful with them. Um, there is some engineering challenges in making micro and mini black holes, um, but it's certainly physically possible. I'm curious, Ben, if you have any comments on you know, the engineering or designing or why you may or may not want to build one of these.
2: The engineering of this is really fascinating because it's really tricky to make a black hole that's big enough to actually do any damage. Uh, What happens when you potentially make these black holes in a a particle collider is you smash enough of these uh, protons or neutrons or whatever elements, or not elements, uh, particles together such that they get inside of that event horizon, but they quickly can evaporate because of Hawking radiation. While light can't escape a black hole, there is still radiation that can escape, and that's how black holes eventually kind of reduce and go away. And when they're very tiny that happens very quickly because they don't actually have a lot of mass and their gravity uh can't hold that radiation in uh so to create a mini black hole that actually has enough mass in it to do damage you actually would have to put in enough mass such that the things it's near uh actually could be you know are kind of on the same order of magnitude of mass so if you wanted to, like, swallow the Earth, you're going to have to create a black hole that has gravity, that has mass in it that's kind of similar to Earth. Otherwise, uh, it'll just evaporate or kind of get absorbed by Earth and destroyed. Wow, that is, uh,
0: I guess I didn't really think about that. Um, but, you know, when, when you mentioned, Denon, that we are circling a black hole currently, if we are rotating around it, aren't we kind of slowly moving towards
1: it like, um, you know, like a turd down a drain? No, not necessarily. I mean, you can look at the the moon is not well. For other reasons, the moon and the Earth might get closer together, but not really because of gravity. It turns out, you know, once you're in the right circular motion, your your the force of gravity is just causing you to go in that circle, not move any closer. And that's the hard thing for people to understand. It's like that. Inv- it's like when you spin a rock on a string around your head. The rock doesn't get closer and closer unless you spring unless you forget and stop you know, spinning the string, then the rock can hit you in the head. Um, gravity acts like that string. It's what's making you move in the circle, and you're not getting any closer. So it, it's a balancing act. But in the end of the day, you know, also this far away, the force of gravity um, from that black hole is, is very, very weak because we're very far away from it. And that's the other thing people forget, right, is the force of gravity depends just not on the mass of the object but how close you are to the object. Um, so, yeah, it, it it's... It's way less dangerous than people think. You don't want to think of them as actively sucking like a vacuum. I think that's that's the misconception people have. But how great would it be if, you know, in a Jetsons-era world where you have a, a vacuum cleaner powered
0: by a black hole and all the dust just gets sent off into some other place or smashed and compacted into a fusion reaction? I don't know if we're getting too sci-fi here as we close out the show. Maybe maybe I've, just, I've shot myself with, with a drunk gun. But what, what do you think about that as we close this up? What about a vacuum-powered black Hole or po- black hole or black hole-powered vacuum, whatever way you want to do it.
1: Dan, I- I'm I'm going to just interrupt you right away, cut you off, because I'm a little disappointed, which rarely happens on this show, we know. We know the future is not black hole-powered vacuums like the Jetsons. That's the past. We know the future is mammoth-powered um, vacuums as we bomb ourselves <laughs> into the Stone Age. And anyone right. watching the show knows that, Dan. So,
2: <laughs> Well, all right, fair enough and and there's all and there's also always Modoc's solution, which is dump all your trash into asgard through it through a portal. Uh, you know <laughs> right. I think you know we, we've done a lot of pollution uh on this planet, you know the right solution maybe dump it you know maybe not asgard. that's kind of rude to the Asgardians, you know, maybe we just dump our garbage straight into the sun, uh you know. That would really uh, cl- clean things up.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely don't want to get Thor coming after us. I mean, of all things, no. dumping off into the sun seems like a much better answer than dropping it on Asgard. I'm with you. Uh, but, you know, we've re- I- I've made an error. Denon clearly pointed that out. But we- there may be others. There may be additions. There may be om- omissions. And if we have them, this is the place for them. Denon, is
1: there anything that we that you wanted to get to that we didn't discuss about MODOK? Well, I, I really love that MODOK um, is proud of stealing... Um, The boot right at the very beginning from Iron Man. I also love the whole episode where they're trying to get um, Captain America's shield and his interaction with the little known bad guys. That is really fun. I, I, As I've mentioned previously to the two of you, I love that Ten Pin only has three bowling pins. I know Ten Pin is the reference to to bowling, and, and Dan, you kindly explained to me that he's part of a juggling troop. So that mystery was explained, but I felt I needed to share it with the audience <laughs> if anyone else was suffering from that same mystery. Um, yeah. And then, as I said, I just I, – I said it already, but I'm going to put it again because I love it so much in our errors and missions. I just love – When his minions first wonder where he's going and he's going secretly in an underground tube um, to spend time with his wife and kids in the suburbs. Um, That was to me probably one of the funniest moments um, in the entire show. So despite my criticism at the beginning, great things in this show, loved a lot of it. And so, yeah, those are mine for now.
0: You know, that Ten Pin may have been a mystery to you uh, that you suffered through, but what we don't do is make our audience suffer through our pregame warm-ups and possibly some of our private conversations where we discussed in detail the juggling troupe that Ten Pin is a part of. But what about you, Ben? As the juggler of the group, I know that Ten Pin may have been on your mind, or were there other things that you wanted to discuss that we didn't quite get to?
2: Well, I do like Ten ten Pin's whole uh, explosive juggling clubs, juggling pins, that's a very clever way to hide your uh, weapons. But what really kind of got me is the, uh, exp- I like kind of genetics. And I like how we know that Modoc's big-headed gene in this universe is a co-dominant trait. Uh, because one of his children gets it, one of them does not. Uh, you know, it's all, it's all about genetics. And it kind of shows us. A little bit more about how uh, how this universe works by giving us that little uh, tidbit of science there.
0: I love it. I like her bedazzled hover chair as well. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this is pretty funny. Well, I've got two uh, errors here, guys, that I've got to correct. Dennon, you pointed out another one earlier. I'm at three in this episode. I'm whiffing. I- I'm on a I'm on a slump here, guys. Hopefully, I can get myself out of this. But I mentioned in our Loki episode in our Loki episode that Lamentus uh, was in t- in 2052. It's not. It was that actually took place in. 2077. Uh, and also in our Black Widow episode, I discussed how MK Ultra used LSD and electrodes. Well, as I mentioned previously, I, I, I'm doing a whole fascinating nouns episode on the MK Ultra experiments and the CIA. And let me tell you, there's a lot more going on besides LSD and electrodes. I don't even think that was a thing, uh, but you guys gotta check out that check out that episode because that is the one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. Um, and I gotta mention that there was a great reference to the fly where Austin. Gets combined with his dog and one in like the movie The Fly and one of those little transporters and he comes out in like a fly dog hybrid which I just really love. Uh, so we have you know we've got a great question from the audience we're gonna tackle here really quickly. So this one comes from Art Mattson. And he says, uh, What would you do if you encountered your time traveling variant? This thought used to keep me up at night, but now I sleep with a gun under my pillow. Any help would be appreciated. Well, God bless the Second Amendment, I guess. Uh, but, Denon, what would you do if you encountered a time traveling variant of yourself?
1: And as, an, as a bonus, what would they look like? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. They would clearly look like Ricky Ticky tabby um, and be a mongoose, um, because yep. that was clearly why I was spending a lot of my childhood pretending to be Ricky tikki tavi and a variant spawned from that as I transformed into him. Um, so that would create some challenges interacting, because I think there would be a language barrier there. Um, you know, communicating would be, would be hard. Um, I would be truly impressed at my intelligence and good looks, because a <laughs> mongoose is an incredibly beautiful animal. Um, that's about all I got. That's where I'd be going with that, I think. Uh, what about you, Ben?
2: Well, I, I think I'm going to have to kind of default to my uh, standard D&D uh, character, which is an Hoker druid. So I'm guessing my variant is a bird person uh, who can do nature magic, uh, <laughs> and I'd really l- want to meet that because that sounds really cool. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you know, I was kind of, I thought this was kind of a strange reaction that they would think immediately that this time traveling variant would be a threat. I've always thought that at some point in the future, I'm going to time travel to my past. Maybe it's because Back to the Future is one of my favorite movies growing up. But I would really want to know what was going on and if there's anything that I could do to avoid any mistakes. So if my time traveling variant was coming back to me, they were either coming back A, to help me get through some incredible life challenge or B, to kill me. And I don't know why they'd wanna kill me, but I can only think of that as my second option. So I'm gonna go with the first one. I wanna know everything that they need to know, everything that they can teach me. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, But I think we've answered that question pretty sufficiently. But if you want to get in touch with us, if you've got a question, if you've got a show idea, general correspondence, whatever, we are easy to get in touch with. Here's how you do it. You can find the show on social media. We're on Twitter at pod. We're on Facebook at f triple And now we have an email address for those aforementioned questions, comments, general correspondence, or topics you want to hear about. And that's questions at f But again,
1: we got more options for you. You can get in touch with us individually. Dennett, where can people find you? Well, well, Dan, people can find me on Twitter and Instagram. That's just at Dennett Michael. You flip my name. And then you can find me on Facebook. You need to stick in a prof there at Prof Denon Michael. Ben, where can people find you?
2: You can find me on all the major social media networks at bseepser. And how do you spell that? You spell that B-S-I-E-P-S-E-R.
0: And I can be found on Twitter at Daniel J. Glenn, on Instagram at J Glenn and on Facebook at Analytical
2: Mastermind.
1: And while you listen to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform, make sure you rate and subscribe.
2: And if you're watching us on YouTube, give us a like and leave a comment down below so we can hear your thoughts. And hit that subscribe button so you can get updates on when our newest episodes come out.
0: And finally, this show contains powerful scientific information. As a matter of fact, it is focused on world domination. But you don't want to use it for that. That's what supervillains do. And of course, you want to be a superhero. So do that, be that, and of course, inspire others to do the same. So until next time, thank you for listening. Fascinating Gadgets, Gizmos, and Gear-Based Technologies is a Glencoe production and is produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn fascinating gadgets, gizmos, and gear-based technologies introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and Paul Springers with music and sound design written and performed by Paul Springers. Now, of course, if you're listening to this episode and you've gotten this far, you're going to want to subscribe. Well, how do you do that? You can find the link at the top of the page for everything we've got, and you'll notice that we've got both a YouTube version and an audio-only version. Depending on what you like, we got it for you. And if you do like those videos, you can go ahead and subscribe to those as well. We're on YouTube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And once again, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening.